Kevin Jackson is widely known to be one of Australia's most effective acting teachers. Having completed extensive periods with the old NIDA acting course and the American Conservatory Theatre course in San Francisco, his knowledge and passion for the craft of acting has no comparison. He's guided many of Australia's best and noted actors with insights and an approach which is direct, firm and fosters discovery. In recent years, his passion has extended to the development of an online blog, the KJ Theatre Diary, that reviews live performance. But these writings not only provide us with an assessment of production and performance, but a valued lesson in the history of the play and extensive reflection on the creators involved in the original work. To read a KJ review provides one with an idea of his reaction, but also extends our knowledge of this most sacred craft. We began the conversation with Kevin recounting the previous weekend when friends threw him a surprise 70th birthday. That, so <laughs> both halves of, halves of my life, the professional and the personal, saw either side of me. And that was pretty spectacular. Sounds that like was, a magnificent day. It was. Friends yeah. were amazing. They did, like, wonderful things. Yeah, it was really good. Well, you've given me a lovely skeleton there for yeah. this interview. <laughs> I think you... I don't know if we need to go any further. Right, so, very of good. Of course we do. Of course we do. Um, so where did you grow up? You grew up over near Randwick? Or? Uh, yeah, so my grand, my mother's family were grew up in Coogee. I mean, they're from the country, but the Great Depression and the war and stuff, etc. They ended, of course, the Prince of Wales being a hospital. They ended up having to come to Coogee, so they lived in Coogee. So I lived in... Coogee Randwick area and I have most of my life went to you know early school you know kindergarten and all that stuff St Bridgetines and Coogee St Bridget's in Coogee and then St Anthony's in Clovelly then we moved out to North Ride Housing Commission out to North Ride but I went to the Morris Brothers at Eastwood and I you know that's five but then when I finally left home, which was really early, like 17, 18, I ended up living back in the eastern suburbs and I have lived there all my life, yeah. And do you have any siblings? I have a brother and two sisters, yep. Um, were you, uh, did you perform as a child? I mean, what, what was the, uh, the theatre influences I, I which existed that, for you? Uh, well, yes, so we had at Morris Brothers at Eastwood a great man called Jack Radford, a little short guy who taught verse speaking so the verse speaking choir and then he hauled me out and I ended up being chosen to work in like in the Parramatta of Stetford and the city of Sydney of Stetford and doing all that kind of stuff so that was the beginning of it really so uh, and then monologues. we did a school play yeah yeah you know yeah, yeah poetry you know yeah. Nat, the cicada song by Nancy Keating you know <laughs> where there were like 72 competitors and you know I used to win um, which my poor mother and grandmother used to come and sit through the whole 72 people <laughs> in Parramatta or wherever it was for the city of Sydney. So that's where it all began. We did a school play as well. I didn't play the lead. My cousin played the lead. Uh, and that was it. Then I went to teacher's college. and Oh, no. I, I, yeah, so Catholic Youth Organisation. I directed at the age of 16. I chose... I had some friends and I chose a play called The Importance of Being Earnest having no idea it was a famous play and directed and cast myself as Jack I wasn't a fool I knew that was the best role <laughs> and so I did that also I sang Amal in Amal and the Night Visitors etc because I was in the choir 
So it was always like a bit of a show-off, like it was an adult choir in the local church, and I, like a 12 and 13, 14, 15, was the only kid that used to sing in that choir, so I think I was performing. And then I was quite smart as well, and the parish priest, uh, I sent him a letter because I didn't think he was... In the book it said that you have to hold the host high so that the congregation can adore it or whatever. He never held it, so I wrote a letter complaining that he wasn't fulfilling his stuff. <laughs> and as a result of that, he said, perhaps you would like to join the debating team. So I was in the debating team for a long time. Then I went to teacher's college at Alexander Mackey in Baddington, and, of course, the theatre did a lot of performing there. So I think I did, like we did Waiting for Goddard, so this is 60, 65, 66, 65. So I think we were one of the first places that would ever have done Goddard. And I played Bozzo in Waiting for Goddard at that school, yeah, at Teachers College. And then Genesian Theatre, where I had a really great time, which is a Catholic theatre in Kent Street, which actually is closing in November. Yes, they've lost their um, their building, haven't they? Yeah. You would think that Clover is upset, Clover Moore, and they've been protesting, and you would think that they could force the builders who are going to build a hotel to put space in there to yeah. give it back to the community because it's been there for a very long time. You know, John Bell and uh, Judy Farr and Peter Carroll. So you called it a, a Catholic theatre. Was it founded yeah. by the Catholic Church? Yeah, no, it was an old church. So originally it was a church, like 1868 or something like that, and then became Matthew Talbot, and then it was given to them as a theatre. And you had to be a Catholic to join. And uh, we used to say a prayer to St. Genesius, hence the Genesian, who was the patron saint of of actors, um, among other things, so a Roman martyr. Uh, and I think to avoid playing taxes, as it, you know, it's in Kent Street, next mm. almost on Druid, uh, to pay taxes, they would say Mass there once a year, so that it was officially a church. But <laughs> <laughs> um. So Genesian Theatre, um, amateur theatre or community theatre, whatever you want to call it, what what does that provide for a young person wanting to uh, perhaps seek a career in the arts? Oh, lots of practice. And in those days it was pretty exciting. So they would have a show that was a play that would be Saturday, uh, Friday and Saturday. And then they would also have a different play Wednesday and Thursday. So you could be in both or one or the other. But as well as that, used to offer the members uh, the opportunity to direct or be in, in anything else. So one of my great passions in my life is Chekhov, and my first Chekhov was a 45-minute version of it, of Three Sisters. Condensed. <laughs> well, I can imagine today how upset I would be. Yes. But in those days, I had no idea what I was doing, so that was my introduction. So often I was involved, and a whole 10 or 12, 14 of us were involved in all those productions, either backstage or so the major production or the week week production or workshop productions of stuff, we wrote stuff like silly melodramas and uh, musical concerts and all that sort of stuff. We used to write shows of that kind, and we had a this is amusing story. We had what we called the Clog Award. And in those days, there was a chain of restaurants franchise, so they they have like Hawaiian restaurant theme and a Dutch theme, etc. Well, we at the Dutch one where we used to go and eat, they used to serve drinks inside a half-formed clog, you know, <laughs> that had a foot still, they hadn't chopped it off. So we stole a couple and we made that like the Academy the Awards. Award. Right. 
But the clog award, the major award of the clog, was given to somebody of talent who did something completely unforgivable. <laughs> we used to have a big ceremony for it. We had minor clogs, but the major clog award. Did you win a major one? I did. I, I got for? it for. A, we did a workshop, cut down version of Hamlet, and I never learnt it. So I, I won it for a well-read Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> Improvising the bard. <laughs> yeah. Were you a, um, a well-read, well-read child? I mean, yeah, I think that's yeah. You're always at the library, perhaps. Always at the library, always reading. Uh, you know, last night I bumped into Sarah Snook, who's just begun rehearsals for Saint, Saint John, John. Mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking about it because I directed a few years ago at the Genesians. Uh, but uh, I was saying that when I was like twelve or thirteen, I must have found a biography of Saint John which was, you know, probably all complete bullshit, etc. but I devoured it. So, no, I've always been a reader. I've always, always read, you know. Uh, I always wonder why I love procedural dramas on television. I think it's because I <laughs> used to read um, Ina Blyton's, you know, Famous Five and The Mysteries. I like the mystery books better, The Mystery of Tally Ho Cottage and with Sergeant Plod and all those kinds of people rather than The Famous Five. But I think... That's why I love procedural drama and de- and crime detection. I think it comes from that origin. What's your, fav- what's your favourite procedural drama? Law and Order. Right. Yeah. 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 I think I've watched... In America, they used to... When I was teaching, I used to often be working in the evening, so I'd have the day, so there'd be, like, Law and Order, like, piles of them. I think, in the end, I've probably seen hundreds of episodes of, the, of it. I think it's... And that's, and that's a treat too because you, you have an exposure to so many New York actors yeah. in that series which you otherwise lots. don't see, the stage yeah, yeah. actors. Mm. Yeah. So what about plays? When uh, Were you starting to read plays or, or discover plays? Because I don't imagine no, as a child you would no, access them. No, none of my family were connected to the theatre at all, none. So I didn't go to the theatre I was 17 and I guess the only plays I would have read were those that we studied at school. So we had one-act plays that we did, we read... You know, and then of course Shakespeare. So from the very beginning, uh, Merchant of Venice, uh, Richard the Second, Henry V, uh, uh, and Macbeth became. They were probably the first only full-length plays that we ever studied or looked at in those days. So it would have been at the Genesian Theatre then that, because of the amount of work that we're doing, that I started to cover and read a lot of plays, but. Yeah, now I'm quite well read in the dramatic. I still do. I go to the Nida Library, you know, still. I Like I read Network last week. Oh, know. fabulous. That's really, I mean, it's very close to the film, complete right. adaptation of the film. The guy that wrote the musical, Billy Elliot, what's his name? Dennis King. No, Lee Hall. Lee Hall. Lee Hall wrote the book. Right. So, and there's lots of other plays, but he's the one that's adapted it and he's been extremely From loyal to... Paddy Chayefsky's yeah, screenplay. original screenplay. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's amazing. So the, the family didn't go to the theatre as an event? No, they never did. I think uh, my mother, as I said to you, and my grandmother used to come to the estate and watch. But the first time my family ever came was when I was in uh, Rope, Patrick Hamilton's play Rope, out at Marin Street with Peter Whitford and John Crummel. And I played the Farley Granger role, the secondary, character, secondary murder, murderer. And so my mother and my siblings and my grandmother came and my father came my father only ever saw me perform once 
Anyway, my father was so nervous, he giggled through the whole of the thing. I could hear him giggling. And my grandmother, because, you know, we, we've murdered this guy and stuffed him in a box and then served tea or <laughs> tea to his relatives to see how, how great a superman we were, according to Nietzsche's theory. And um, my grandmother just said, it's so creepy. <laughs> so, yeah, well, yes, no, they didn't come, my family, in fact... Uh, you know, I left home when I was 16, 17, taught, then got into NIDA. I didn't even tell my family I was studying at NIDA until the end of the course. And then I had to ring my mum and say, hey, mum, and, you know. There was never any estrangement. There was no. nothing. It was all thing, you know. Haven't you got tuppence? You could tell, make a telephone call. I said, well, you've got my number. Haven't you got tuppence? Hop in the south, poor man's orange. That's my family. Um... Uh, Were they a sporting family? Was that their, yeah. their interest? Yeah. So Irish Catholic, right. so uh, origins. Um, so my grandma lived in Coogee, so uh, in, in Brook Street. And on the weekend, big family. My mother had a sister and then seven brothers. And they would all come to Coogee maybe on Friday. And us kids would stay home. And then they would either go to the dogs at Harrow Park or the trots at Harrow Park. They'd come home and they'd play cards, gin rummy generally, all night. Then they'd get up, we'd all have communal meals, send us off to the pictures and they would go to the races. Then they would either go to the dogs or the trots on Saturday night. Then they'd be there playing cards all day Sunday. So gamblers, you know, like casual gamblers and not much. I mean, they would drink, etc., but not much. And uh, But, yeah, so it was sporty in that sense my uncle one of my uncles played football and cricket uh, two of my uncles played football and cricket so I used to go and watch the football and stuff like that but yeah can you recall the first professional theatre that you saw oh yes it was Oliver uh, the musical the, yep yeah. at the Theatre Royal with um, Tony Lamont and Andrew Sharp and Tony Sheldon playing I forget which one they were but they were Noah Claypole it. or no, no. Work boys? Or? No, no, no. I think one was Oliver and one was the Dodger. Right. You know, they had principal roles, which yep. made me, who was slightly older than them, extremely jealous. Uh, but I went to the Wednesday, I was at Teachers College and I thought, okay, I'm going to go and see this. I got my scholarship money and uh, I said, if I'm going to spend money, I'm going to buy the best seat. So for 12 and sixpence, um, I sat in the stalls on the Wednesday and that theatre, for the show, there was lots of smoke, but the, the course of the smoke, it would cause the court curtain to bloom out, like bloom out that way. Uh, so thrilling. And, of course, the curtain went up and I watched Oliver, like completely gobsmacked. I went straight home, got some more money and came back that night and saw it again for the second time. And, and was it based on the English production? Because you would have had that, yeah, the, the Sean Kenny sets. Yeah, and, yeah, it was everything. Uh, yeah, it uh, was a complete, it was imported production with Australian performers. You know, um, I always talk about that curtain because Jennifer Hagen and I were talking once upon a time and we discovered that we had a favourite childhood book called The Swish of the Curtain, <laughs> <laughs> which I then found on the net and bought her a copy and bought myself and her a copy, so we've both got copies of Which was about a life in the, cur- the uh, theatre? Yeah, right. it's about yeah. kids right. in a theatre, right. The Swish of the Curtain. I thought that was a good title. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so what... What was drawing you towards theatre? What was the pull that, that you had? Was it a, a show that you saw or no, you needed to be that, somebody else? Or? No, I reckon it's a, it's a reading, of course, but then the other thing 
going to the movies a lot. So I was the eldest kid, which meant that, uh, at, say at Clovelly or at the Clovelly, the kings, old kings at Clovelly, Clovelly Road, which is now pulled down, I think. It was an RSL club, but they pulled it down. And the Ritz, and then the Boomerang Cinema down in Coogee, uh, which is now a block of flats. Uh, but So I used to, when mum... Mum would go to the movies, so I would escort her. I'd go with her, or she'd take me. And then when Dad would go to the cinema then on the other half of the week. So I would see, like, four films, and I would go to the Ritz where I'd see another film for the matinee as a kid with lots of shorts and previous stuff like that. And then, of course, growing up in the 50s and 60s, we had black-and-white television. So in those days... Besides the t- American television, it also had a lot of film, mostly American film. So, you know, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and Humphrey Bogart and Clark Gable and Jeanette MacDonald and all those people. Um, and I think it was watching uh, film and watching television and film on television was the reason why I wanted to act, I think. Yeah. So you go to NIDA. NIDA would have been in its its, its beginning years when, yeah. you, when you went. How, do, how I, did you discover that this acting training Oh, well, uh, of course I was at the, well, at the Genesian Theatre. So, so if you wanted to be a professional actor, we discovered, you know, we were all... I mean, there were, Brian Brown was there as well with me and Julie, Mac, Julie McGregor were, were both at the Genesian. So we all used to... Well, they used to audition and they never got in and then hilariously... I got in and they were like spitting fucking chips and I'm like <laughs> how did you get in and I said oh I don't know so I got in so it was through you know just knowing it was NIDA was there as a result of you know just being with people that were interested in being professional actors who were the teachers at NIDA that you had in that then um, Harriet McNamara was our voice teacher she was terrible uh, but then Peter Carroll came back from England and he was voice teacher for a while. Uh, Margaret Barr and Keith Bain were our... Movement. Margaret Barr in first year and Keith Bain in second year. It was only a two-year course in those days. John Bell was head of acting. He'd just come back from the RSC. But the great influence was Alexander Hay and the Scottish actor who'd been living here playing George in Virginia Woolf and the Pope and the representative, etc., etc. He became head of acting and he was a tremendous influence on us. Uh, I think he taught mostly through anecdote. And, of course, Aubrey Mello was there as well at the time, and he just finished his technical production course. But then John Clark invited him to teach, so he came in and he taught. He was fantastic. So so he and Alex were in cahoots with each other. And, um, in fact, it was Aubrey the first... Not the first show, but the first show in second year, uh, which was the Beggar's Opera Aubrey directed in that, yeah. So it sounds like there are a lot of Australians there teaching who had had a career overseas mm-hmm. and brought back that knowledge yep. to impart at the school. Yep, yep. And John Clark was running the school, of course, uh, and Elizabeth Butcher had just begun as the bursar. So she was like, for me, uh, she's a kind of surrogate mother figure for me because, you know, when I got in, I said, look, I can't come unless you give me a scholarship because I just can't afford it, coming from North Ride and blah, blah, blah complete working-class background, etc. So she gave me a part-time scholarship. They gave me a part-time scholarship, and then when they invited me back for second year, said, I can't come unless you give me a complete scholarship, and they gave me one. So that's how I got through. So I've always regarded Elizabeth as a kind of surrogate mum, 
and, and John, not as a surrogate father, but as a very important figure in my life. And I mean, of course, subsequently he asked me to do other things for him as well. And like, they're both still alive. He's 86, and Elizabeth's just turned 80. So it's, they're amazing. Yeah, extraordinary. Mm. And now you made your professional theatre debut after NIDA in a David Mercer play called After Haggerty. That's right. I, I, yeah. Directed by Arnie Nimi. Yeah. Um, what did you learn in your first job out of drama school? Uh, uh, not that I hadn't learnt very much. <laughs> <laughs> after Haggerty, and I, we used to call it After Faggerty because <laughs> I played a, a young homosexual boy and of course, in the cast, Max um, Max Phipps Max Phipps was in it, and he was a complete terror, you know, particularly to someone of my bent, who didn't really know whether I was or not. I was sort of sort of protecting myself. It was weird because I I think I knew I was gay in those days, but I would not admit it or didn't accept the part of myself. But every role that I got out of Snyder was a gay character, and I was, uh, you know, you go. What could everyone see that I couldn't see? Right. You know, but I think as soon as I accepted that I was gay, I never played another character. So I think the defense mechanism was so strong. I was trying to say, I'm not gay, I'm not gay, don't look at me as a gay actor. And, but clearly, people who knew much better than I that you were, so I got all of these parts. But as soon as I accepted my sexuality, I never was cast again as a, as a gay character. Never, ever again. Isn't that just it's extraordinary? Isn't yeah. It? yeah. Um, you're a member of the old Tote Theatre in the opening season at the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. What was the play and, and who was uh, the Well, it was, we opened with a triple bill. It was, they were trying to do a repertory, you know, so we did uh, the Thrupney Opera, which um, Jim Sharman directed. I was just a chorus and understudy for that. Uh, and we did, what's the other one? Uh, we did David Williamson's... Uh, what if I die tomorrow? Which I wasn't involved with. It was the third one, and the other one was Richard the uh, Second. So I, I was only called in repertoire. So at most week, well, I didn't play every night because I was not involved with What if I Don't. So we used to just alternate in repertoire. But then the Altoke found it was too expensive, so they went back to just doing one play for a short season of five to six weeks. So the first one after that was Michael Body's play Cradle of Hercules, which was about Benelong. Um, Gaden played Philip, Governor Philip, and Jack Charles played Benelong. And we had a group of... And David Gopalu was in it as well. Can you believe it? Wow. This would have been 74, 75. And David was still very much connected to his culture. And it was I always thought it was ironic that we were on Benelong Point with Jack playing Benelong. But one of David's relatives had been killed in the Northern Territory and he knew instantly in his body and he just disappeared. I mean, the Indigenous company was quite hilarious because we used to have to do things like we never know whether they're going to turn up or not. You know, Jack always did. But the other guys would, so we'd start at 7.30, they still weren't there. Quarter to 8, they weren't there. 8 o'clock, we had to start. So the stage man is going, you know, scenes 14, 17, 18, etc. will not be included tonight. We just skipped stuck to that. <laughs> and we're going, okay, okay. And then, <laughs> and then hilariously, in like scene four, they've arrived. Those scenes are now back in. <laughs> Flying with but, the scene. Yeah, pants. poor Gaden. I remember he was so 
nervous uh, that he used to have a bucket in the wing to throw up in, just like he'd vomit into the, just out of sheer nerves, I reckon, and on he'd go to do it. And then the other one was uh, Love for Love, which was hilarious, with John Crummel playing Tattle. So we had a company of actors that did a lot of things regularly. So I was lucky. I was under contract at the Tote for two and a half, three years, and so we alternated between the drama theatre at the Opera House and the, parade, the old parade theatre, doing going back and forth. You know, I was in Equus and all that stuff in that period. But it was very exciting. You know, Crummel playing Tattle, who had an outrageous costume for every single act, you know, like he got more and more outrageous, as he did, of course. And he used to come on... <laughs> and come on in his costume and pose and he refused to speak until the audience applauded his costume <laughs> once they applauded <laughs> the play would begin again <laughs> he was so funny and completely and utterly I had worked with him earlier uh, in Rope out at Marion Street as well and John was naughty out there as well John was fantastic he was naughty and played naughty things with us and but you could not be naughty to John. If you were naughty to John, he, you, you, it was just rage would come back at you. It was really... Of course, he'd done Boys in the Band and all of that stuff. He'd been spoiled for some time. Yeah. It was great, though. Peter Whitford was the other actor in Rope. So like Peter would always whip him into shape. The same thing, like, in After Haggerty, uh, Terry Bader looked after me because he, he was in the show as well. But Terry looked after me uh, with that... You know, in protecting me in my first show. So I owe a lot to Terry Bader, which I've never thanked him for. I hardly ever see him anymore, but he was my great thing. So I did that, then I did the Marin Street Rope, then I did Measure for Measure for with John Bell and Anna Volsk. John directed it, Michael Long, and Gary McDonald played Duke at the Nimrod Theatre, which is now the Stables Theatre. Mm. Were you a good actor? Uh, I was a reliable actor. No, so I could do everything without fuss, really. So I was always in work. I didn't know how lucky I was, you know, like... Um, uh, so I'm, I think I'm a good supporting actor, uh, and that's the role that I found myself in, but I was, I was pretty good. People do, do regard me as a good actor, but I didn't play any major responsibilities as a young actor until we went out to the Q Theatre, Doreen Warburton... And a group of friends, we set up the Q Theatre out in Penrith, and of course, we cho- <laughs> we chose our we chose our uh, the season to fit within. Uh, and then we had five, six professional actors on contract, and then uh, the rest of us were, who were part of the team would do stuff. So we'd choose plays, and so you'd obviously choose plays that you could either direct or star in. So it was pretty good. I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages. I talk to people from front of house and backstage, directors, designers, drag queens and doormen, performers, producers and publicity, whatever stages it takes to engage and affect an audience. Have a listen to Graham Browning, a.k.a. Mitzi McIntosh, about a lifetime in lipstick. Is is who you are as a a performer. And I realised very early on that comedy was something I did well and that worked really well in drag, and so that became my style. So I guess everybody has their different styles, but for me, certainly the -the over-the-top, exaggerated, um, it's sort of more a caricature of 
Hollywood than it is of women as such. It's it's sort of I, I, I think sometimes we're poking fun at Hollywood's impersonation of what glamour is. Then we're taking it and, and blowing it up even more. I think there was a period before you discovered the Q or the Q discovered you where you gave up acting. You just yeah. thought it was too hard and you gave it away. What was what did you discover that was so insurmountable about the profession? Oh well, you know, every single night. So the the at the old tote you would be rehearsing every day from ten till five and then you'd be performing at night. You'd have to back at the theatre at seven or whatever time that you needed to be for costume and makeup. 7.30 at least, 7.25 at least. Uh, so I just found, you know, life. I just couldn't... I wasn't having a life of any kind. I wasn't in a real world ever. And I just found that... I mean, what? how arrogant. Because I, I was lucky, because not only was I doing the theatre, but I was also doing television. So I did a lot of TV for, you know... Uh, uh, On the side, Crawford yeah. Productions or something? No, no, like I didn't do that. It was ABC mostly, right. you know, the cousin from Fiji. Right. Uh, adaptations of you know four or five three or four episodes of a classic Australian novel or you know at one stage I played Archibald in you know the Archibald Fountain Guide uh, so I did lots of television uh, you know and of course I don't drive so and radio so I used to I wasn't very good at radio I was lazy but um, uh, I'd had so I had this other career going and I was so busy and I just said oh, I have to give it up it's too tiring not knowing how lucky I was or how good I may have been or reliable that I was, that people was giving me regular work. I was never out of work in all of those time until I took myself out. Perhaps you were just exhausted. No, I I don't think so. I mean, I loved it, you know. I just thought, I've got to have a life of some kind. So I ended up, the job I got was uh, a guide at the Opera House. So that was fantastic. Because I was still in the theatre then, you know, I was still doing the theatre, and they just called you up and you go and do a guide. And we used to play cards and stuff back in the room, and then take a tour out and show off. For, you could only do three to four tours a day uh, because of the timing. But uh, no, that was great, and that's when I then got involved with the Q Theatre when it was down. Don't having the lunchtime theatre, circular Q. Yeah. yeah. I was teaching still, uh, so I was invited into teaching. So the Arts Council of New South Wales invited me to do some teaching, so I did some teaching. Drama teaching? Yeah, yeah. take class there. And then uh, the Q Theatre came up and Doreen asked me to do some teaching because that's how we began the Q and Penrith. So I did some teaching, but I used to do box office for them. And then I ended up directing a play for them with Doreen in it, uh, is that the first play you directed? My first professional production right. was that. Although at the old tote... Um, so you, haven't get, you hadn't given notes until no, I had that to give time Doreen when, Warburton notes. Yes. <laughs> and, the, and the last person you gave notes was that priest. Oh, yeah, yes, the priest. That's exactly right. Oh, no, I'd given lots of notes in between, I can assure you. Yeah, I can assure you. Um, so tell me about the Q Theatre and, uh, and Doreen. Yep. Oh, wow. So there's another uh, woman... I wrote in my blog, you know, I have a blog, and I just thought I, the women in the Australian theatre, you know how neglectful we are of any practitioner in Australia, really. We just forget them. 
you know, like, I, why, if, if Elizabeth Butcher was living in the UK and had done what she'd done, she'd be dame or lady. She would be... Yeah, recognised. She'd be recognised. Mm, and celebrated. Mm. Most people don't know who Doreen was, you know. No one knows who Elizabeth is, you know. But they would be part... They would have been, been honorary titles as a result of it. So Doreen's one of those people and one of those great, you know, so... I wrote in a blog and I talked about the independent theatre and uh, what's the name the woman that used to run the independent Doris Fitton. Doris Fitton. So you, when I was growing up, that's what there. There you asked me earlier. When I was growing up, you know, of course I'd read the stuff. You know, I read all the scandal about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf because it was on the front page of the Daily Mirror. And that was, was that Arthur Hay in that? No, no, no. no that J- was Jackie Cott. Jackie Cott. Uh, John Clark directed it. Right. Uh, and so, but there was scandal because you know it had f- terrible words in it, and like it was complete mysterious what they're talking about. This kid, what's it? That no one understood it, uh, and uh, it was a scandal all around Australia. So of course I'd read all that in the newspaper, and uh, I'd read about the ensemble, and then I'd read about the independent theatre. So the one of the earliest plays, maybe the yeah, I'd had seen all of it, but one of the early plays was to see a play called The Cell which was an Australian play about nuns. I don't know who wrote it. And Doreen happened to be in that. Uh, but then Doris Fitton, uh, along with Alex Hay, etc., they set up a, a professional repertory company where they did, like, long days, like the Morning Becomes Electra and Check Off and stuff like that. The uh, classics. At the classics. And they said it didn't work out, but that was a big hoo-ha as well. You know, like the Genesian Theatre in Kent Street, which is an amateur theatre, it used to get the major Sydney critics to opening night reviews because there was no other theatre other than the J.C. Williamson's imported companies who were doing, you know, imported commercial plays and or musicals. But there were. The ensemble really... And uh, etc. Because the old tote didn't come into existence until like '66 or something like that, somewhere '69, somewhere in there. So the amateur companies like the New Theatre and the Genesian Theatres, the Pocket Playhouse here in Sydney, they used to get major critics from the major newspapers because there was nothing else for them to review. And also, I suppose the, the repertoire they were performing was was quite interesting, or uh, stuff that people uh, wanted. Oh yeah, to see. people wanted to see. Of mm. course, you know we know it was fifties and sixties, mostly British drama, Terence Radigan and all of that sort of stuff. The Swan, you know, and all of those. We hadn't really ventured into American drama. Yet, Not here, much. No. I mean, the, the, of course, the New did, uh, you know, and they did that famous Crucible. You know, with Crucible, yeah. but they also did a famous play called Motel or Hotel, you know, with nudity and stuff. And John Hargraves was before he went to NIDA was right. involved. And the, the vice squad came, and it was in St Peter's Lane there, and they closed it all down, and there was all this hoo about it. So there was all of this secret stuff, you know, and, of course, if you go back, the Minerva Theatre, which is now still the Metro Theatre, that still used to be George uh, Miller's offices. I don't know whether it still is. That building is still there. In the cross. You know, yeah, like the beautiful Art Deco. Beautiful they've ever done. Yeah. It's been mostly preserved. Uh, I don't know how much has been altered, but the, the Presidium Archons, I went to a book launch recently and I could see through the thing. Oh, well, the foyer, I went up the foyer and there's the arch and all of that stuff. Because, you know, famously, George Miller did hair in, uh, in Harry, that theatre. Harry, Harry Miller. Miller yeah. Harry Miller did hair in that, in that building, in that theatre with Jim and all of that crowd of people. But 
Yeah, so there were lots of, there was American drama, you know, like the classic uh, Death of a Salesman or whatever, but essentially it was still British and with occasional Australian stuff coming in. The new was pretty good in, in service, servicing Australian writers, Oriel Gray and all those kinds of people that were getting opportunities on their stages. The news history is quite fascinating to look yeah, at. Yeah. So we're at the queue. That, that's a terrific yeah, part so, of Yeah, so down there doing that. And then Doreen decided, she got bored. Uh, so she decided she wanted to set up a theatre company. Now she was an English woman, wasn't yeah, she? Yes, she was English. She was Joan Littlewood. She, oh, okay. she was with the second tier Joan. So Joan opened with, you know, Oh, What a Lovely War and that company. And I think Doreen came into that. So a lot of... Uh, so the NIDA training for me, the interesting thing about the NIDA training that John and uh, Alex and John Clark supervised was it was very English. So my origins, my reasons for being an actor, as I said to you, was watching film and television. And so my inclination was American, which would have been method acting, you know, yes. so all emotional stuff. But the NIDA stuff was very technical. It was all voice and body skills and thinking, and etc. I can swear in a Bible in the two years at NIDA in seventy seventy one, no one, not a single teacher, ever mentioned Stanislavski and the six questions. Wow. We learnt by doing. Yeah. We learnt by doing. You know, we did lots and lots of Production. classes in the morning, and Class. even in first year, we were rehearsing plays every afternoon. So we learnt by doing lots of stuff. Um, yeah, but no one did. So Doreen decided that she wanted to set up a theatre company. And so what she proposed was there were no five or six of us and uh, I would be sent out to Blacktown or to Wollongong or to Newcastle to do ten free, ten weeks free classes for the community. And so sometimes I'd go to these places and there would be hundred people aged from 8 to 80 waiting to do these classes. I used to kill them off the first week by doing lots of physical stuff the first week. Okay. So, I'd get so they rid wouldn't of the come back. <laughs> they would never come back. And then, you know, so you improvised how you're going to do this, etc. So, and that was fun. And out of the best of those people, you would then ask, invite the best of those amateurs, would they like to do a special work workshop uh, at Parramatta? in the psychiatric hospital at <laughs> So I used to run those classes as well with Richard Brooks, who was a member of the queue, and Tony Ingerson and people like that. But I stuck at it most, I think. So for nearly two years, three years, we rode around the whole of the metropolitan, up as far as Newcastle and as far as Wollongong and west to etc. Uh, and then Doreen proposed to the councils in these areas that she'd like to set up a permanent theatre company out there and the, the best offer came from Penrith so uh, they gave us a building the Railway Institute which was right next to the station which was extremely convenient uh, they couldn't give us any money but they gave us the building on you know like a dollar a year or whatever uh, but when we went in they gave us they used to send all of their electricians and their plumbers and stuff and so they came in and did everything for free oh great so they did all the electrical work and all the plumbing work. And then Arthur Dix, who had come to Australia to set up the design course at NIDA uh, and had joined the company as one of the professionals. So we had like five. There was Doreen and there was Arthur Dix, uh, who was the designer, Max Ifland, uh, myself and Tony Ingerson and Richard Brooks. We were the six. And then we hired 
we auditioned and we took on five actors. Uh, and uh, together with that that basic pool of professional talent, we were, it was completely socialist, so Joan Littlewood, we were all paid exactly the same amount of money, which was just above equity. Uh, and if you weren't acting, you were doing front of house or you were doing some other, some other thing. So you're there all of the time. Doreen wanted us all to live in Penrith as well, but I wouldn't do that. And Arthur Dix didn't do it either. So, But everyone else, a lot, mostly everyone else, rented a house or, or lived in Penrith. So that Doreen wanted you so always to be part, part of, of the, the community. community. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, it was very uh, exciting. And Arthur designed and built a portable sp- space that went into the hall, to the Railways Institute Hall. Uh, and in the first year, we used to pull. We, we too, we'd we play in Penrith for two weeks, three weeks. Then we'd go to Parramatta for a week and then we'd go to Bankstown for a week. Later on, we also went to Orange for a week. Uh, so we used to pull down the theatre and reconstruct it. It killed us, so we couldn't. We only did it for a year because um, it just absolutely... Because it was just us that yeah. did it. But with this other thing, then we selected the best people of Parramatta and from that, then the Penrith gave us this thing and we opened up this thing. And the best people were still doing classes and workshops with the Q, which I ran and Richard Brooks ran, ran at the Q Theatre on Penrith on Saturdays. It was quite... We were rehearsing. Every, we'd play Tuesday to Sunday and we would... Monday was our only day off. But So we'd rehearse every day and play every night. On Saturdays, I used to teach a four-hour class from 10 to 2, have a break, and there was a matinee at 5, and then an evening performance at 8. And that's what we all, all of us did, that kind of commitment and dedication. It was necessary to keep the the company alive and keep it growing. We read all those things, you know, stuff like, you know, Ian McKellen's theatre, you know, Actors Theatre, and all of those companies from Britain and they all collapsed after a while because actors just wanted to play starring roles and if they got offered work outside so we all gave up our agents and that's where that's where my career kind of collapsed because all of the connections I had to television and radio particularly television by the time I came back to it they'd all moved on etc so I was a kind of unknown factor as an actor uh but by that time, I developed the skills of, as a director and a teacher and an actor, so I was able to do all things at once. And I got a scholarship from uh, um, the New South Wales company to study somewhere. But in the meantime, so Penrith was great because the Blue Mountains were a lot of English migrants, so they were looking for their local rep. And besides all of their amateur companies that were all over the place, they used to come down and see our shows, so... We only sat 80, 90 people a performance, but we were virtually sold out most of the time with the place that we were doing. You talk about a man called Arthur Dix. Yep. And we talked before about how a lot of our great practitioners sort of disappeared yeah, yeah, into yeah. the annals of history. Um, yeah. Tell me about Arthur. Well, Arthur was an Englishman, um, had worked, I think, in the English repertory system, Dundee and all of those places. Uh, and John Clark. Uh, went to um, uh, UK and found him and brought him back to NIDA to set up the design course. So Arthur was responsible for the design, for the formulation of the very famous design company uh, um, school there. So Arthur set that up. Um, he, he, besides being a very talented uh, individual and very 
practical. Not only was he interested in the beauty of the work that he was doing, and that, but he was very practical as well, uh, and could paint and do all that, build and carpenters and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he he directed occasionally. He was okay as a director. He was pretty good. But the other part of him was that Arthur was also yeah he was he was married and had two children, uh, but he was gay and um, so he was uh, a great uh, mentor for me in terms of the art and that, but also in terms of me. Ex- me understanding who I was and just having the courage to be who I was in so this is like seventies going through into the eighties. Uh, we opened the queue officially in seventy seven. So we worked did all of that preliminary work for like we would have done it from seventy five, seventy six, and hence I was all over the place. Uh, doing two classes a week for <laughs> two different locations. Uh, and then we opened the theatre officially in 77. In the meantime, I'd still given up acting, you know, so I wasn't acting still. Uh, I was in the very first show. We did a musical. We did Lock Up Your Daughters, which we opened the queue with, and that was with a professional company, and then the, the, the community people that we'd selected, they were the chorus, and they did. we had special permission from Equity to do all of that so Lock Up Their Daughters was the very first show a musical out there Doreen also commissioned two Australian musicals two big Reedy uh, River and, and we did Reedy River but no but two brand new rock musicals right. where there was somebody one of the kids that turned up in the workshop was a, in a rock and roll band and very talented so Max Ifflin wrote the book with him and Doreen encouraged it and we, we toured actually we toured it into the city and that was a time when the Mayfair Cinema had gone back to being theatre, so we performed in there. It's where I watched Sound of Music like 16 times, so <laughs> finally <laughs> um, uh, uh, we were performing on the stage at the Mayfair with a rock and roll show, and we did some lunchtime in there as well. Went back to that for a bit. But um, So Doreen uh, did that, and, and Max and Arthur were pretty instrumental in the setting up of these Australian... Phil Scott wrote one of his first musicals out there, uh, Fourhander, uh, and that was terrific as well. Um, so your first professional directing gig was at the queue? Yeah. Yeah? Yes. And it was a Australian one-act play. Michael, I can't remember. I can't remember the name. But it was a Jewish play. It was hilarious. Catholic boy doing this Jewish play, having how do you do this and making sure you weren't treading on any grounds. And Doreen, you know, she played the lead in the in the particular play. So it's very much learning on the job, I guess, and and, and being advised by people like Doreen and Arthur. Oh yeah, but what I had done was while I was at NIDA, I was very naughty in that you're not supposed to have done anything outside of NIDA. But I used to find myself directing at the university and the university society both at Sydney Uni and at New South Wales Uni. So, you know, like there was one time when we were doing uh, so-called rep season and we did, uh, in those days it was called Ten Little Niggers, Agatha Christie's, I think it's now it's called, and there were none. Uh, But we were doing that and we're doing the heiress. Well, you know, I died in Act (laughs) 1 of Agatha Christie's play. Uh, And I was the cousin in, uh, I had one scene in The Heiress. So I had all this spare time. So I directed these shows um, 
without Nida knowing or without Nida appearing to know. So I did that, and at the time I was still directing at the Genetians, and I started to direct at the New Theatre. So I was in constant practice, and because I was getting a wage as a professional actor, I could do that. Yeah. You know, I could pay my rent because I was working at the Old Toad or I was working for the Q or as a guide at the Opera House. So I had enough money to cover my costs and at the same time be in continual practice in directing stuff. Yeah. You identify Chekhov as your favourite playwright. Oh, yeah, still what, is. Who are some other playwrights that uh, that you enjoy? Uh, well, you know, so Arthur Miller, of course. I mean, my whole premise when I teach is that to work with the best playwrights available because I do most of the work for you. Yeah, well, that was my next question. What do these playwrights teach us about acting? Uh, everything, because they've done the work. Two hours, you know, most of them are drafts two years in, and I don't, who knows how many drafts. So the great writers know what they're doing, you know. So if you can read the script well enough, they support the actor, you know, like it's all on the page. Just read the page and do what it says on the page. After you've done that, you've solved the play, if you then want to expand on it, you can within, you know, I think the great plays are elastic. They can take seasonal stretch, you know, like last year when uh, STC presented the Malthouse production of Away, uh, one of the great Australian plays for me, one of my favourite, what the director had done with that was stretch it into a completely different area which I would never ever consider doing but the play survived and I think the great plays are the plays that survive elastic they're elastic you're listening to stages and I'm Peter Ayers have a listen to our other episodes which include guests like Australian theatre director Kate Gore here she discusses working on new Australian plays Yes, you just have to have a lot of energy, I think, when you're working on new plays, uh, which is probably why emerging directors tend to do that the most. Um, It's the energy that's required. It's above and beyond the eight-hour day, for sure. Um, And particularly, there may not often be a dramaturg in the room, and you can often be the conduit between the stage and the page, so you're the one conveying things to the writer and back. Now, you taught at NIDA for... Around about 27 years on and off? On and off, yeah. yeah. So, so how did that, that how did gig that arrive? Yeah. That happened, because uh, that scholarship that I got from the Arts Council, I went, uh, if I'd spoken another language, I probably would have gone to Italy or somewhere, but I didn't, so I went to the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco. And uh, you taught there for, for about... Uh, on the, yeah, so, but what happened, so I was there as an auditor, I came back, I blabbed my mouth off, Nick Enright was finishing at NIDA. Oh, no, Nick had left and someone else was in... No, someone else... George Whaley, then this other guy that was a disaster, then Nick came in... As as head of acting. As head of acting, and he was not completely happy there. So John Clark said... Because I'd come back from America after that auditing, and I started John again blabbing my head off. John Clark said, oh, why don't you do a play? So I did Sam Shepard's Berry Child in 1983 which despite some other people's claim was the very first time it was ever done in Australia because I'd seen it in America, so like this contemporary American play and so I brought that back. So I did that at NIDA and then I got offered other jobs as a director and then Nick was unhappy about being head of acting so John invited me so I became head of acting 85, 86, 87, 88. I just found that difficult. My, my true objective was to be artistic director for the Sydney Theatre Company. 
so I thought, wow, at 36, I've been offered this job. This is a great step towards the ambition of running that. the Sydney Theatre Company, you know. But, of course, being head of acting, I loved the teaching. I loved the art side of it, but I hated the administration. And that's when I discovered, no, Kevin, you could never be happy running a theatre company because the administration would kill you, you know. I, I would need somebody else to do that. I'll make the artistic, which is finally what happened, but I'll make the artistic decisions uh, and somebody else will make the financial and administrative decisions. So I gave that up. And then whilst I was there, as a result of having gone to America as an auditor, ACT, I, I used to just tour around the place. Around, I'd always arrive in San Francisco and... Uh, They'd ask me, what are you doing there? I would go back and say hello. And I'd say, oh, I'm running the course at night. Oh, well, would you like to teach here? I said, yeah, sure. And that's how that came about. So I was invited back to do some work at ACT as a teacher and at night. And then it ended up me doing, I hate summer, Australian summers. So I'd do winter, winter, winter if I probably, if I possibly could. Uh, I always, so night I always kept Tony Knight, who then after a little triple thing, Tony Taylor and, Tony Knight and Dean Carey were head of acting after I left for a year. But, of course, the triumvirate, as with Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony, etc., didn't work. So Tony ended up being... But I was always... Had a job there. I used to come back for the winter terms and take over. I was principally working with the first year. I, I worked uh, at NIDA on and off for 27 years and at the American Conservative Theatre for 21, 22 years. I survived about five managements at ACT. And I think the reason I did that was because it was very... Uh, ACT, um, Bill Ball set it up and all of these people. And Alan Fletcher took it over and then lots of... But the, all of the people there was a conservatory theatre. Annette Benning and Denzel Washington and people like that went through the school... Uh, in fact, I, I taught Denzel for one class, <laughs> um, but Annette Benning, etc. But it was very Californian and very hippie, you know, it was formed in the 60s, so they're all very nurturing, and I think they used to love the fact that they could be nurturers and they would invite me in, and I'm, like, very direct, and so I would be like, that's bullshit, get off, start again. So they used to like me coming in to throw the bombs and then let me go, I'd go away again, you know, and then they can, they could be the permanent nurturers, but I was the confrontational teacher that gave a kick up the butt for those students that were lazy. Well, it used to be a common belief that drama schools, and especially NIDA, were about breaking down the individual and, and rebuilding them as an actor, but surely actor training isn't as, as brutal as that? Oh, uh, no, no. So breaking down, I just, I just despise, I, you know, it's just so... Uh, kind of offensive really yeah yeah but th this but, this was a common I, that, that was belief and on people the still believe it yeah, you know yeah. people still believe it uh and say well you can't break down what doesn't want to be broken down but what you so the teaching really at night was to take the actors a you had to undo their vocal habits and undo their physical habits to take them to a neutral place. You also had to, had to get them to understand who they were and what their makeup was and how they could use that best in the telling of their stories. Uh, so it was. I, I remember reading um, being an actor by. Uh, he's a um, Simon Callow. Simon Callow. You know, I remember reading that. And it was such a relief to read that book. I mean, I'd left drama school, but his early chapters in being an actor talks about. Uh, you know. 
breaking down and crying. And so I said, oh, it's just like being at NIDA <laughs> or at ACT in San Francisco because it's very, conf- uh, it's very confrontational. I mean, most people don't understand what we as actors have to do to create work, which is use ourselves. And you've got to give yourself permission to use aspects of yourself that Incredibly are vulnerable. In, yeah, but aspects of yourself that are in this box, you've locked it up. So you've actually got to go to Pandora's box sometimes. To And that's kind of frightening unless you're in control of yourself. So the students would, you know, they'd break down and cry. But, you know, at the moment I'm teaching at a film school and I try to... They were, they're still breaking down and crying and you go, it's normal, you should be glad that you are, this is a process but for those people that uh, were defensive and weren't going to break through it was a continuous battle to get them to do it and so that's where that reputation of breaking down, but it's be, really about it's about revealing the actors and their strengths but you've got to get them back to neutral, it's one of the things that I objected to when Lynn Williams took over from John Clark and Michael Scott Mitchell and other people were running the course and Iggy or Kipstone, they we had a staff meeting, this is recently, I mean, seven, eight years ago, and they said, can't you hurry up your course? And I'm going, no. I said, this is, this is the actor's body is there. The, the, you don't hurry up a good no, casserole no, or no, a good No, 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 that, that's their resource, you know, that, that, and it takes time. We're animals, and you've got to undo the animal habit to rebuild it, and it takes a year to 18 months to get them to that place. Design course, you might be able to get, you can say, you know, you didn't do that faster, you can cut, but animal habit, this instrument, it takes a long time to undo habits, to take it to a place of neutrality where the actors can then go, oh, I can make a choice here. I can make my voice sound like this. I can move my body like this. And hopefully, what Keith and... And the voice teachers at NIDA used to do was get our instrument into this neutral place so that it became second nature for us to make these choices. We weren't necessarily self-conscious about the choice or if a director suggested a higher range note or a different tempo and all of that kind of thing, uh, we could make pretty quickly. I think uh, the NIDA training in the three-year course that I was participant in, both as an assistant teacher but as head of acting as well, was Olympian, you know, like you were there from 9 till 10 at night, you know. And if you did that course, you developed a body memory that is immersed. So I know now, I haven't acted for many years, but if I was going to, somebody offered me a leading role, I, I have, which has happened to me, and you know, um, I know that if it's a big role, it might take me three to four months to get my machine back to some kind of order. But all I have to do is concentrate and the, the Olympian training, the body memory's there and it comes back. It's not as great as it was if I was in constant practice, but it's present in my body because of that focused breaking down, uh, neutralising of the instrument. So, yeah, so it would be taking everyone back to a neutral position and we would never, when I was a teaching NIDA, we would watch them in the first year, first term, and then we'd see what habits they used to create their work, which was always good, so they got pats on the head. But then I would come in and I would give them scene work and other work that never let them practice their normal habits. So I was trying to get them to... Develop new new muscles and new choices, Mm. to, to widen the palette of choice, so that they were then obviously 
going to fail most of the time because it's not their instinct, it's not their habit, and it would frighten them. And so they would cry and have a very unhappy time. But then, and then of course, then in second year, you do the classics, you do your Chekhovs and you do your Shakespeare's, and then you do, I think, the hardest of the forms is comedy. So that would come last in that term. But then in the third year, you'd say, okay, now we're going to cast you with what you, your strength, and you're going to have all these other muscles to add to that. So it took them two years before we let them do what they did to get into the place. So for two years, these guys were facing failure. No wonder they felt they were being broken down, etc. But all they were was being challenged. And the great actors, you know, so fortunate to work with people. I mean, NIDA was, I was lucky to be teaching at NIDA, you know. So you'd get really, really wonderful people. Kate Blanchard and you know, Ryan Core and Sarah Snook and all of these people. All the good, all the actors that have achieved highly who didn't need to come to NIDA. They didn't need to come. They knew why they came and they did the course. So with their natural instincts and skills, plus what they were swallowing and hungry for, they left greater actors. Sometimes, you know, you get actors coming in tonight, you think they're going to be great, but they just refused to do the course, so they just stayed as they were. So they would finish, and they would be good actors, but they would never be great because they hadn't applied themselves to the challenges of the course. I was one of those actors. Right. I was a completely arrogant shit in first year and second year in NIDA. I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. Not, so I, re- I resisted the course. And I think that if I had done the course that John and Alex had asked me to do, I would have fulfilled my fate, which was to be a, the greatest actor Australia had ever produced. But I was completely arrogant and resisted the course. And so I limited myself incredibly. Um, I heard an interview recently with David Mamet, and he says that in a school, young actors are learning subservience. Their aim is to please the teacher. The best way to learn is in front of an audience. Yeah, well, uh, uh, that's the worst kind of school, of course. Uh, but that, one of the great things about NIDA was that, you know, in my time, as I told you, we learnt by doing. So uh, n- n- every production from second year on was for an audience. So you'd rehearse and then you'd do five to six performances. So the objective was always that the subservient actors are bad actors. Mm. The best actors are the, you know, like when I, you know, like... The risk takers. Well, not, but when I was auditioning people, I I would say, do this, and they'd say yes, and someone would say no, and then they'd argue and say, you're in. (laughs) You'd take the people that argued with you. That want to discuss. Yeah, that would discuss, but not only that, but those that argued. Those that had a vision beyond themselves. There are so many people that come in that really want to be celebrity actors. They want to be famous and or rich. They don't want to be artists. The ones that would come in and they do, they could walk, talk and think. That's terrific. And then you say, why do you want to do this? And then you direct them and then you force them to do things to see how far they would risk themselves. And or if they thought, then they'd argue. Same thing, you'd argue. Okay, okay, all right. I always wanted as a teacher to be challenged. I wanted to... It's boring to just be the If guru. someone does everything... Yeah, if everyone... Yeah. What's the Because there, there are boring. a lot of gurus around. Oh. The acting, <laughs> teaching. <laughs> Don't you worry yeah. about it. But, you know, I used to get... Uh, I, I, I wanted to be a better artist as a result of working with that class. 
If I wasn't learning, I, I just lose, I get bored straight away, which is why, you know, I'm still teaching. You know, we talked about my 70th birthday at the beginning. And people say, well, why are you still doing it? You could retire. I said, yeah, but it's so much fun. And every day you arrive at a class with a whole new group and you're working with them for 10 weeks or two years at the film school that I'm at, uh, you have to improvise. And if they're boring and dull, it's hard to go to class. But if they're exciting, it's just exciting to go because you never know where you're going to be at the end of the day. You've got a structure and a plan and all that crap, but there are people that, oh, I never saw that before. That's interesting. It's exciting. Mm. You're teaching at a film school at the moment, you say. Um, So tell us, what's the difference between acting for the stage and acting for camera? Uh, I think acting is acting. That's what I teach. However, the camera is so ruthless, it just captures everything. And if you're not truthful, the audience can see it straight away. In the theatre, you can hide it a little bit. So, you know, at the moment with this experimentation that Kip Williams is doing at the Sydney Theatre Company using live film, etc., it's very interesting when you see, like Arturo Ui, you can see some actors that are on stage, you completely believe them, but because the camera is capturing them in close-up up there, you just say, you're a liar. Get off. Mm. I don't believe a single word you're saying because that camera, at the stage, it's a kind of... the. As an audience, we're doing the editing and we look at the bits that we like about that actor and we ne- we neglect the bad things. But when it's at that height and that expansion up there and it's a close-up on that face and you look at those eyes and you go, you don't know what the fuck, you're, you're just acting here. You're not owning or believing. You're not being anything at all. So the emphasis now at a film school for me in my first section now is really... Uh, directing the actors to a sense of knowledge about who are you. So I get them to write biographies and all that kind of stuff. Unless you know who you are, you will never... And I try to say you've got to have your self-knowledge. 96% of you is in every performance. 96% of you, I reckon. So the 4% is the differences from role to role, and that's the research and the homework. 96, uh, most actors can be good. The 4% is what make actors great. They do the homework. Kate, Kate Blanchett and all those people, uh, Sarah Snook, etc., all of those people. But uh, unless you've got to have bubbling but just beneath your consciousness your whole, whole of life. So when you pick up a script, your life says, oh, I, I know that. They don't know that, but they've got a feeling about it so they can come to it. So... Going to film school, the emphasis has shifted and weighted to the actor. Who are you? What is your life? Do you know it? Is it available to be used in the playing of this role? Tune in for more stages where you hear a variety of guests talk about their career and craft, like Donna Lee recounting her legendary mother, Gloria Dawn, and the curtain call in Peter Kanar's A Hard God. When she did that, I do remember her coming home saying, Oh, Peter asked me to do one special thing for him in the play. I said, What was that? She said, Well, at the end of the play, poor Aggie loses her husband. And as the lights slowly dim down to a blackout, she sits there praying. She wasn't a Catholic like her husband was, but she was praying a Catholic. 
Catholic prayer as the lights come down. It's the finish of the show and it's so sad and everybody's sobbing. Anyway, when the lights come up, that's when you take your bow and she'd be there at the end of the play, smiling and grinning and taking a bow like she's always done in every show. And said, Gloria, darling, they're all crying. Please don't smile and take a bow. It was the only thing she got wrong. So as an actor, um, we, we, we train, we learn, uh, we read. We're influenced by Stanislavski, Stella Adler, Meisner, all the different approaches to acting. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's up to the, the individual actor yeah. to find out what works for them. Yeah, I, um, I, I've, I've developed this thing called the creative habit. So I give them a mode of technique of approaching. But I said, what, what Tony Knight and I did at NIDA was, people said, what, what kind of teaching? Who is it? And we said, well, Stanislavski is the core, but we would invite teachers from other techniques so that the actor can choose what works for them. You have to develop your own particular habit. I mean, I teach this, so if you fail in front of me, I say, well, why aren't you using my habit? If they succeed, I say, oh, you're using my habit. It's very good. But it's not. It's the, And that's why you want the actors that, are, that fight you because... Actors are individuals and they've got to have a passion about what they believe works. But you've got to give them all the choices possible, as many choices possible, for them to cherry-pick what's going to be useful for this role. And Tony and I were very religious about inviting a range of approaches to work, which essentially are just, uh, you know, David Mamet stuff or Anne Bogart or, or, you know, um, the... the, uh, the Polish guy, uh, what's his name? Uh, Michael's. No, no, um, the, you know, Porthia, that guy. But, you know, they were all, I regard them as fads, all based around the Stanislavski yes, process. Yes. So fads go in and out. Yeah, and generationally approach. everything appears and disappears, that's, all that sort of stuff, yeah. But the core is Stanislavski. You've taught some extraordinary actors. Um, are you able to sit back and enjoy their work, or is there an element of you that's still wanting to advise or correct? Oh God, I guess always advise. You know, uh, it's so incredible. You know, I've been teaching for such a long time. Sometimes when I go to the Sydney Theatre Company, they're all—I've trained them all for across this whole range of ages. And uh, sometimes I just sit in the theatre crying in fury that they haven't employed them, they haven't done the work. I just sit there going. What the fuck? You know what to do. Why are you getting money to do half-baked shit? And when I can nominate five or six other actors who are sitting here as an audience who would do the work and do better than you, I get so upset about actors that essentially, this is a t- not a terrible thing, actors are lazy, but Australian actors are extraordinarily lazy. The, I know they won't do the because I'm one of them. Right. No. And I never achieved. And the, the quality of acting in Australia is so variant and it's, like, astonishing when you can get a collective that all want to work. And it doesn't happen often enough. I mean, it doesn't happen enough anyway, you know. You go to New York and I go to London. Well, the first time I went to London and New York, it was such a relief to see bad acting yeah. on that stage. I went, oh, right, yeah. so it's they're not all perfect. They're... They do shit like we do shit. But, of course, there's much more good as well. The, one of the handicaps of training actors in Sydney or Australia, in whatever city that you're in, is that I think you learn a lot by watching 
other actors and there's just not enough good work for a student to go along and go, oh, wow, and sit there and watch that actor at work, watch that technique yeah. at work. Yeah. So often there's too much bad acting. Although I, I also believe that student actors can learn a lot more from watching bad acting. Good acting is so seamless. You can't work out how, why are they good? What are they doing? I mean, mm. you and I as artists know what they're doing. Mm. Uh, and But it's seamless, you know. But bad acting, you say, oh, that's terrible. Look at that. Why are they doing that? That's untrue. <laughs> Their voices are fucked. You know, they can't move, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Can anyone be taught to act? No. Right. So it's either, it's an inbuilt... It's an inbuilt ...mechanism need. or need. It's a need, you know... I, I, I teach that uh, the more fucked up you are, the better you'll be. So use your fuck upness to create. Yeah. And, you know, so, so it's a kind of therapy. You know, Streep talks about it as acting as a kind of therapy. You know, and I, I love the story, you know, where you can pick up this bowl of spaghetti and scream and throw it against the wall and smash it. Uh, and then someone comes in cut then they come in and they give you a new bowl of spaghetti someone else comes in and cleans it all up and you can go oh fucking throw it again so we get to express our psychological frustrations in a creative effort that releases work that in real life when you pick up that bowl or that glass you go who's got to clean up i do so you put it back down again so you never get to explore or release the pressures in your life there's a lot of repetition involved in acting, mm-hmm. performance, rehearsals, etc. Yep. What are the challenges for the actor there? Obviously, it's maintaining a truth. Does it wear away the truth? The repetition? Uh, well, um, uh, if you let it, I you guess. know, no, you know, like look. What great performance is about is playing with the other person, and I think that if uh, you know, if you were Proctor and I'm. Putnam, I played Putnam in the Sydney Theatre Company production, which is a small role, Act One. I play cards for the second act backstage. I come on for one line for Act Three, and then I play cards again in Act Four, then take the curtain call. But So I'm working opposite you, and you're Proctor and I'm Putnam, and that's what the audience believe because we've told them so. This is Proctor and this is Putnam, and this is what he says and this is what he does. But essentially... How you keep a performance alive is not playing Proctor and Putnam, but me, you playing Peter and me being Kevin and going, you better watch it tonight, Peter, because I'm going to do something that you're not going to expect. And he said, you think you can out with me? And we're alive on stage. We never do anything that would destroy the play, but I might lift my eyebrows slightly higher tonight or just take the tone up a little higher or move uh, gesturally. That is a completely different thing. So... It's us competing against each other. Affecting in a, each other. In, yeah, yeah, and in a thrilling way. Mm. But it's Kevin and Peter on stage, and we know what we're doing, and we go off into the wings when we exit and go, wow, that was great, wasn't that terrific? But the audience have seen Proctor and Putnam, mm. and we're alive in that moment. So it's the rehearsal is where you do all that my dead dog crap and all that, or actually before that's the preparation. Then you come in and you make those offers on the floor and you touch the thing and you teach your body memory to respond, you know, grief or happiness or whatever it is. That becomes completely second nature to you. So that when you come on to perform or take 40 or take 42 or whatever it is, it's about you finding being present, alive in the moment with the other actor. And that's where 
it's never boring and it's never boring for them because it's completely alive and you and I are playing, you know, right on the edge of, you know, life and death, failure. Because if you don't get that tennis ball, the scene's going to fall apart and you're going to look like an idiot. Um, There are so many schools and courses uh, and opportunities to train around for young actors at the moment that didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, What's that doing for the industry? Generally nothing. It's making a lot of money for a lot of people. That, no. Because, you know, kids who are starstruck, stars in their eyes, they, they want to be an actor, yeah. or legitimately want to be an actor because yeah. of, of what that does for the community. Um, but they're being seduced into all sorts of... Yeah, well, well, of course they never get anywhere, you know. Yeah. So in my own moral way, you know, it's a brought-up Catholic, in that weekend, my birthday thing, uh, two of the books that were most influential, believe it or not, was The Christian Gentleman, which was a textbook of Christian etiquette that we had at Catholic school, which we used to read from and stuff. And the other one was Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Um, so they were the two big turning points in my life, or immoral influences. So since leaving NIDA a few years ago, you know, acting schools have asked me to come and teach there, and I did, but then... I just realised that these kids were just never, ever going to be actors. Mm. There's not enough jobs and they're not skillful or interesting enough to be actors. Whatever their personal fantasy are, they never were. So I used to feel guilty about being paid to give these kids false hopes, so I refused to teach in those schools. And when pe- private people come to ask us, and then I, I always interview them and chat to them and talk to them, usually in the Hilton so they can't kill me when I say, no, I won't work with them. Uh, but I go into estimate, so what is this? Do you think you can do it? And if they're interesting, then I say, okay, come and we'll do a speech and work on this speech. Come and then, okay, yeah, I kind of like you. You're interesting. Yeah, okay, we can proceed. But I can tell you I've only worked with one person in a private way, one right out of maybe 60 or 70 people that have come to be coached, take private classes, because, no, 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 in my judgment, which I might be completely wrong, you you will never have a career. You just don't have it, which is a complete dedication to being a craftsman. Art is an accident, but you have to have the craft to manipulate yourself into a place of accidental art. And these people, and that, you know, that's why they gave up music, that's why they gave up ballet, because they refused to sit at the piano and play one note of the other or their guitar. They just, they hated the repetition of it. It's fucking boring. The only reason to go to a drama school is to get the voice and, and body skills. That's the only reason. You, you can, if you're there, you can act. You, know, you can act anyway. You can learn on the job that. But if you don't have the voice or the physical skills, you won't get very far. You just won't. Do you ever get stage struck? Do you meet actors, I mean international, or where you're just tongue-tied? Uh, or uh, There are some actors that I watch and I just usually cry in stage out of sheer jealousy. <laughs> I cry at their gifts. I just say, oh, God, why can't I do that? You know, I just, yeah... Why did you start the KJ Theatre Diary? You've got a blog where you yeah, review... Yeah, so one of my students, Pearl Tan, and some other people said, 
because they were coming back from LA, you know, on the, they'd go over to LA and do the pilot season. And when they went over there, they realized that most of the American actors and anyone living in LA are in permanent class situation, whether it be good class or whatever, but they're so much class work. And when they came back to Australia, there wasn't stuff. So anyway, Pearl said, you know, Kevin, we miss your... She was one of my teachers, students at NIDA. She said, we miss your classes and we miss your forensic brain, you know, kicking us up the butt. Um, I think you should write a blog, you know. So I wrote the blog, as it says in my mission statement blog, a... Uh, essentially to get uh, one thing first thing is to create history with, with with the newspapers or whatever giving you a hundred words or two hundred words what can be said um, my blog is notorious sometimes because of its forensic length but it really is to give a history for people in the future to have some understanding of what was happening and what actors were doing but it's also to give actors acting class so I, I give acting class notes and that's what Pearl and Kate Box and other people said that's what we need we just need to be so it's, it's really a way for me to, A, to give honour to the craft of acting in a word in a collected thing and also to give people acting classes because you do you provide a great historical context and, and history of the creatives involved and the play yeah. Yeah, being yeah. reviewed and well, it's just, again, it's just to appreciate, to, to give a context and a sense of history on the ongoing. You know, I always encourage my actors, uh, you know, whether at the theatre acting or at the film school that I'm working at, the International Screen Academy in Waterloo, where I'm teaching, along with other, with Lynn Pierce and Julia Cotton, who also taught at NIDA. So uh, is the, I, I always encourage them saying, OK, let's do your film history, go back to silent film, look at that technique what are they doing and then into the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s up into contemporary acting to see how acting is continually altering and evolving and changing shape according to stuff and what are how does that happen how did that happen and what is happening today what is necessary for you today to succeed so yeah how long does it take you to write a review oh, or blog because it's more than well, a review well you know by the time you see the production, then uh, contemplate and yeah. research? Well, no, sometimes it can take several weeks, but the actual writing of it might be 8 to 14 hours. 8 to 14 hours. And then, I mean, I don't know whether if you've read my blog, you can read it, and then, like, you come back to it two weeks later, and very subtly something's been altered. I, I, I'm continually editing. Right. So it's never static. I mean, except way, way back, you know. Um, it's static way, way back because I don't know how to get back there <laughs> to correct it. I'm, computer, I'm a computer illiterate, basically. Uh, but it can take 12, but even a small one might take me three to six hours of, of putting it. I, I mean, at the computer for three to six hours, at the laptop. It's three to six hours. The big ones, you know, like I think the important ones, you know, like I thought the flick by Andy Baker, which I recently wrote about, which is relatively long. But if you go back to see Uncle Vanya or some of the Russian plays, because the Russian theatre are like a great deal, playwrights are like a great deal, often they're like like maybe two or 3,000 words long. 
Well, there was a gag going around that, you know, reading your review of Long Day's Journey into Night took longer to read than it did to watch. <laughs> well, that, uh, that particular production, you closed your eyes pretty quickly. <laughs> would you ever return to the stage and, and act yourself? Or, or what would it take to get you back on the board? Uh, you know, so, yeah, I would. I'd like to go back to work on the stage. I mean, and I'm pretty good at estimating uh, how much time I need to feel that I... Because preparation is everything. So rehearsal is making offers and discarding offers that you're giving and what other actors are doing. So so most of the work is in the preparation stuff. So, you know, like I have been asked to play, you know... Leah and Greek I'd love to do some Greek stuff uh, I said well that's going to take me I need at least three to four months to get my instrument back together before I can even begin to rehearse so I need three to four months but there are some other roles you just go well yeah I can do that I'll do that straight away I can I can do that I know I can use that you know so I did uh, Women of Lockerbie and I played a principal role it was a big breakdown and all that stuff I, I knew I could do that uh, while still teaching but then when you're offered something like Lear you go you know I don't think I, I need a lot of time to get myself ready to approach that so if you gave me the time that I thought because I think you know, I, when I teach I can say this is not going to make it easier for you it's going to make it harder for you to act because you know you'll be so self-conscious about what you're not doing or what you didn't do that night. So for me, the emotional stuff is the preparation stuff. That's quite difficult. But to be present every night in that position and to give that, even if it's, you know, I think six out of eight times you're giving facsimiles, which the audience believe, but you know is bullshit. You're lying your way through it. You're lucky if twice a week it works for you. So acting is very hard and you feel that you fail every night and the failure happens, you, you know, playing Quentin in After the Fall, Martha Miller's play, people would say, oh, you were so fantastic. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'd be sitting in the... It would take me about an hour and a half to come down from that. So I'd be sitting in the foyer after the show and people saying, you were terrific. Oh, that was those of them that wanted to say that did. And I'd be sitting there going, thank you, thank you. And I'm going... Fuck, I reversed that word. I left out the comma there. That pause was too long. So little tiny things that you... That's what eats you up. It's the detail, the precision. The, that's what a, an artist, a craftsman is about, trying to, trying to get it right. You can never, ever get it right because adrenaline takes over every night and things alter and change. And you say, but no, so you fail. Every night you come up, you go, fail, oh, fuck, I've failed. And you say, oh, tomorrow night I'm going to get it right. And, of course, you get that bit right, but you get something else wrong because you got that right. And you go, come on, oh, fuck, I failed again. So unless you've got the temperament to accept the fact that you will fail at every task you do, don't be an actor. You've got to accept the fact that you're failing. That was Kevin Jackson and a fascinating conversation about his life's work. If you haven't already, do look up his theatre blog. It's kjtheaterdiary.com. You can subscribe and be kept abreast of all things happening in live performance and theatre around the city and whenever he travels. See you next time on Stages. Stages.